This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. There's a Sudanese conflict and people are beginning to talk about how it heightens the the question of immigration across the continent and then also the South African scenario and an ongoing conflict has the potential to spill into other parts of the African continent. Already it's doing that by virtue of, of course, the migration aspect. People run away from conflicts. We've seen it everywhere else in the world, and we've seen it in the Ukraine-Russian space. We've seen it in every every sense. Uh, wherever there's a conflict, people begin to spill over the border. So that's a common entity about what happens when conflicts do happen. And that includes South Africa. People will, of course, make their way to South Africa. And, of course, we've been listening to Kumbuzo Nsevani, who, of course, is the presidency, the minister in the presidency, and Savani, let me just recollect. Savani, she of course is the minister in the presidency. She was delivering the state of security budget vote earlier on Friday, and Savani said that the resurgence of conflict in some parts of Africa, talking also to the Sudanese issue, would derail the development of Africa. Somebody who has written a lot about migration and also been talking a lot about migration, of course, is Professor Alan Hirsch. So I do want to bring him into the conversation at this moment. Professor Alan Hirsch, welcome to Power Perspective. Welcome to Power 98.7. How are you? Thanks very much, Denzel. It's great to be with you. It's been a bit a long time. We <laughs> worked together, and even before we worked together, we, we knew each other quite well. Absolutely. Um, but we haven't seen each other for a long time. So thanks very much for bringing me onto your show. It's um, And also, I'm glad that you've recovered. I didn't know you weren't well, but I'm glad that you've recovered. Yeah, you, you know you know what happens is, is someone gets the flu and in a, in a studio of, of this particular nature with with the close proximity of things, you know, and, and air conditioners and things, and somebody gets, you know, an, a throat irritation and an ear infection, and then pretty soon it's spreading through everybody else. And that's, that's what, that was my problem. So, yeah, a little bit of a little bit of a an irritation in 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 the throat and 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 ear space. But Prof, how have you been? And 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 you know, I'm I'm I've I've looked at your journey um, up and up to where you are now. Of course, um, uh, founder and director also of the Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance. I think you were a director there many 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 years ago. In essence, I mean, the, as as a founding as a founding individual. Um, yeah, you know, I started my career at the University of Cape Town as mm. a as an economic historian. I was lecturing in econ- economic history, and then mm. in 1995, I went into government, mm. um, into the trade and industry department with Trevor Manuel. Yeah. Um, you know, you were talking about the good old days um, earlier. Those, mm. For me, were the good old days. Um, you know, that Mandela government and the first Mbeki government, mm. where we did seem to be able to achieve, you know, a lot. Mm. Um, and then, um, you know, a couple, uh, you know, so, and then I went to the presidency, as, mm. as you mentioned. I was there for a while, um, deputy head of the policy unit. And after a couple of years um, of the Zuma presidency, I decided I wanted to move back to Cape Town, mm. um, partly because I didn't feel I had a, a role in the presidency anymore. And, mm. you know, it wasn't that clear to me. And, partly because my parents were getting old mm, mm, and um, I wanted to be with them for mm. you know, more or less the last decade. So 
So, and that was when I was, I'd been working on it for a while with the knowledge of President Zuma and various other relevant people mm. setting up the school, um, the, the Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance. And it was a very exciting project. Um, you know, I'm not actually running it anymore. Mm. Um, it's now being run by Faisal Ismail, who you may know as mm, well. Do, yeah. Um, also old, you know, bureaucrat from Pretoria. He was yeah. a... Deputy Director General in Trade and Industry, and um, old friend of mine as well. Mm. I'm very lucky to get him to take over. And now, you know, I'm you know doing work with the um, New South Institute, um, which is a, a new think tank in Johannesburg, run by Ivor Chipkin, which mm. is doing work on on various governance issues. Mm. And about four or five years ago, I, I got really interested in this migration question. As you said, my, you know, I'm known for my work on the South African economy. Yeah. But after a while, you know, I've always been interested in African issues. In fact, I was, when I lectured, I lectured on African economic history. Yeah. And I wanted to get back into that area. And the issue of, of the movement of people across African borders was something that really fascinated me. Um, you know, why, why, you know, it's so complicated. We've got 55 countries in Africa. Yeah. Um, to have a relationship between all of those countries, to have a common policy or, you know, a common attitude towards the movement of people. What do we do when there are crises like the Sudan crisis or like the Zimbabwe crisis, yeah. you know, 15 years ago, where, which affected South Africa, where in one year, the, the, the number of Zimbabweans that came to South Africa um, more than usual mm. was about 700,000 in 2008. Um, so, you know, there are those crises. Mm. But actually, most movement of people across African borders is not crisis-related. It's related to their, their daily lives. They mm. may be economic status the border, or mm. their family they've got family across the border or mm. they want to go shopping across the border or they want to get a job in another country because you know there's a great opportunity to build a dam or to mm. run a hospital or something like that mm. and actually most african migration is about that kind of migration and mm. um it isn't really easy enough to do that yet in 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 many parts of africa we've been making a lot of progress in Africa, you know, you know, surprisingly so, because we usually hear negative stories. Actually, in terms of reducing um, barriers to to movement, we've done wonderful, you know, really quite well. Mm. But not on a continental level, but on a often on a regional level or on a country to country level. So I went to Nairobi earlier this year, and yeah. I didn't need a visa, which was you know fantastic. Yeah, and Kenyans don't need a visa, visa coming to South Africa, and that's increasingly the case in many African relationships, but it's not nearly enough the case. Sure. Uh, you, you've been talking, um, Prof, about, you know, the, the, the African continent and, and, and why, and, and I think you've touched on it a little bit, why it's difficult to get, you know, countries just to get to a common place, that, that common policy, that common attitude. In, in, in 2018, uh, we, 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 Prof, are you still there? Yes, yes, I'm here. Sure. In in twenty <laughs> okay. In twenty eighteen, there there was the agreed upon, you know, um, um, uh, of African countries through the AU, I think, to to establish that African continental free trade area. Also, also, what they also then was they adopted 
the protocol supporting the free movement of persons between countries, and, and some have ratified and some have signed. So look, when, we, when we get to what, what, what is it about reducing the barriers to movement, what it is about getting to the common policy and attitudes, when, when at the AU level we're beginning to, and, and most recently as well as 2018, we're beginning to have that kind of language, what are the hindrances then to, to, to free movement and, and, and free trade if you then must? And, and if these sort of you know, uh, free trade areas and, and, and also the protocols are beginning to emerge uh, at, the, at the AU, what's, what's, what's the hindrances? Is it individualism within every single country? Or is it that is is it that countries perceive the economic benefits not to be that great once they begin to think about opening their borders? Yeah, it's a really complicated issue, and in, in a way, that's why I was so interested in it because you know it's a complicated problem and solutions are complicated as well. Mm. But let me just you you, you mentioned the the African um, Continental Free Trade Agreement. Yeah. Now that has been signed by virtually every African country and has been ratified by 40-something, probably about 45 African countries today. That means ratified means that Parliament has passed a law which domesticates the the treaty, which makes it part of the national law. In the case of the Mm. free movement uh, of persons Mm. uh, Mm. protocol, um, about 32 countries signed the protocol, but that doesn't mean anything. It just means that the president at the summit meeting um, in January uh, 2018 wanted to be a part of it. Mm. But actually, the, the, the key thing is ratification, and only four mm. countries have ratified it. Um, mm. and, uh, and, the hin- and the hindrances there, Alan, what, what would those... Yeah, well, what would, yeah. I, I think there are a number of factors. So you talked about the economic issue. Mm. I think that that's important. I think that there's a very high level of inequality between African countries and within African countries. Mm. So you have a, a country like South Africa, um, which has a very high level of inequality, very mm. high level of, of, of quite high level of poverty and a very high level of unemployment. Unemployment mm. now is 33%, you know, mm. the official number. It's about 8 million people mm. unemployed, officially unemployed. If you, yeah. you know, take the broader number, it's more than that, a lot more than that. Sure. Um, next door, you've got Mozambique. Um, the the per capita income in Mozambique is one fourteenth or less than one fourteenth of that in South Africa. So if we think, you know, we poor in South Africa, mm. Uh, Mozambicans are a lot poorer on average, and mm-hmm. obviously there's some very poor ones. So there, there, there would be a fear, you know, amongst um, South Africans, and there would be a fear amongst South African politicians mm-hmm. that if they open their borders too much, um, especially to low-skilled workers, that they mm-hmm. would be perceived to be allowing people to take the jobs of that that, that South Africans should be taking. Mm-hmm. Um and, and 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 most political parties have been have been motivated by that fear. Um, and in fact, you know, you know, obviously you can see the the logic in that. But that doesn't mean that you know that wouldn't if 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 all, all the countries of, of Africa were to agree to that protocol, it wouldn't mean that people can walk into jobs in yeah. South Africa. They'd they'd actually have to um, get work permits. That ha- you know, unless they were working illegally. Mm. Um, they would have to get, and and if they came into the country with a visa, with a passport, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, 
they wouldn't be. They, it would be difficult for them to to proceed as sort of undocumented people. Sure. So, so it's more complicated than that. That's not the only reason. So, say say you know we have a relationship with um, other members of SADC. Mm. SADC is about sixteen or seventeen countries now. Mm. Uh, um, you or I can travel to every one of those countries except for two um, without a visa, and that's because we know the countries in SADC. We mm. know. Mm. Zambia, we know Zimbabwe, we know Botswana, we know Lesotho, we know how their systems work, we know what our relationship to those countries is, and it's 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 not so difficult for us to make a decision to agree, you know, to have that kind of system in in our region. Mm. Um, we don't have that relationship with the DRC yet. So, for example, so we. So if you come from the DRC, you can't yet come into South Africa without a visa. Mm. And that's maybe because the South African officials don't have the same amount of confidence in the DRC systems as they do in the, say, Zambian system. Mm. Um, and, and, but, but, the, but the fact is that the countries near to each other and countries that have a long relationship with each other find it easier to do that sort of thing. But if we were dealing with Say Chad or the yeah. Central African Republic or or Mauritania. Um, we have we have no investments in those countries. We have no trade. We have very little tourism. We have very little exchange of people, even at a cultural level, mm. between us and those countries. So you need to develop that kind of familiarity and that level of trust that you can um, trust the systems, that you know how they work, that you can rely on them, and you know that when something goes wrong, they will they will go fix things. Mm. And, and I think we're a little bit away from achieving that in Africa. We need we need a lot more engagement between mm. um, officials and political leaders across the African continent before we get to that point. Mm. Alan, I've been reading some of the, the the you know the work that you've been writing about migration. One of the one of the fascinating aspects, and I and 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 I and I would have assumed it true but when it when it hit me i saw it there highest number of foreign born residents living in another african country is south africa so that's the highest number of of uh, uh let's say migrants to any other african country and i've got the i think i've got the others here uh, south africa is 4.2 million cote d'ivoire 2.5 million uganda 1.7 million nigeria and ethiopia 1.3 million 1.3 each million people, and and in in that particular aspect, though the the that that figure of I think four point two million makes up seven percent of the for, of the population. Well, it's not a huge number, it, relatively speaking, to to our population of let's say sixty to sixty one percent. Not a not a huge number. In some people's views, it is a high number, but but that's not the question. Is it is it where South Africa is concerned, having the highest number of foreign-born residents living in South Africa, is it the economic issue that drives that in the main? Well, you know, there was a huge increase in the number of um, uh, non-South Africans living in South Africa in the last 20 years. Mm. So between um, 2000 and 2020, the number of... um, Foreigners, mostly other Africans living in South Africa, increased by 1.6 or 1.7 million people, mm, mm. and a lot of those people were people from um, from Zimbabwe, because of the economic crisis in mm. Zimbabwe. We, 
in metrics, but in 2008, Zimbabwe had an inflation rate of something like, um, I'm trying to remember the number, I think it was something like 69 mm. billion percent <laughs> per month. Mm. 69 billion percent per month. It was estimated that. Mm. Things were going absolutely crazy. And any Zimbabwean that could come to South Africa, mostly on a visitor's visa, came. Mm. And then the South African government, I think very correctly, made provision for, for Zimbabweans mm. through a through an exemption program. Mm. Uh, you know that that is currently, um, yeah. you know, that the withdrawal of that uh, permit, which, which undertook, you know, underwent very d- different forms. It yeah. was issued in different um, terms. It, it started out as the, D- the, the, DZP, the DZP, then it became the ZSP, then it, it's, I think now it's the, the ZEP now. Mm. Yeah. Um, and and uh, Minister Motoledi um, went to withdraw the, well, basically Zimbabweans operating under those visas should have applied for other status by the end of June. Otherwise, mm. they are no longer mm. supposed to be in the country. With, um, with the court action pending as well? Well, the court action, you know, which has been taken by a number of parties, including mm. the Helen Sisman Foundation, basically says, um, he, 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 you know, it gives a number of reasons why that he shouldn't go ahead with that action. Mm. And you can see that, I mean, if... So the 178,000 people who are officially still in the country with those permits. Mm. I mean, I know a lot of Zimbabweans who came into the South Africa at that time, mm. got the original permit, got the second round of permits, but by the third round of permits, they kind of gave up because mm. they didn't know where the thing was going. So mm. they're actually not legal now. Mm. But the ones who are still here who are legal are about 178,000 people. Mm. Um, and that's not a very large number. Mm. Um you know, in in Latin America, they have a they have a rule in Mercosur, which is the big um, economic union in Latin America, and they've done some amazing things on migration. One of their rules is that if you've worked in a country mm. for two years and you have no criminal record and you've been paying tax and you mm. have a, a good work record, then your status can be regularized. Mm, mm. And you know, I think that there would be good grounds. You know, if if the Zimbabweans who've been in South Africa for up to 15 years, mm-hmm. um, have had children here, um, have married you know, wives here. Even if they've had children here, by the way, that those children aren't entitled to South African citizenship in terms of, of the permit. Mm. But so, so a, lot of the, a lot of those people are, are a result of that Zimbabwean crisis. Um, uh, and it's something that we obviously have to sort out one way or another. Mm. Um, but why do people come to South Africa? Mm. They come to South Africa because it's a free country. Mm. It's a country with relatively good social services. It's a country where there are some economic opportunities, although our economy is not one of the strongest in Africa anymore. Mm. Unfortunately, we've been going very, very slowly for about 15 years. But um, still, it's a, a country where there, are, where there are lots of opportunities and there are you know, good conditions of, of life compared to many other African countries. So if you're going to choose which country to go to, you'd, you'd, you'd think about South Africa, you'd think about Kenya, you'd think about Ghana, you know, there are a number of countries where, where, where we are getting, the, you know, where we're getting things right. You think mm. about Senegal, um, you know, even though we, we're not in such good shape, at the, I mean, we're in terrible shape at the moment. I mean, I listened to the last half an hour before this show and I heard mm. how angry people were mm, and mm, mm. I know why, yeah. 
Alan, why would you, I mean, you, you speak about status regularized, and, and let's just for a second just stay on the, 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 the DZP and, the, and then, of course, the ZSP, and then, of course, it is now the ZEP. And when I say all of those, it's the disposition of Zimbabwean's project, the DZP. Then it became the, uh, the, the ZSP, which was the Zimbabwe Special Dispensation Permit, and now, of course, the Zimbabwean uh, um, Exempt Permit, the ZDP. Government could have moved in, in various ways, Alan, and, and, and you've spent a lot of time in government and advised government as well, and, and specifically around the economic space. But now you're also dealing in the migration space, and I'm sure that you're also bumping up against you know people who would be in that space within government as well. Why do you think, and you know, I'm just picking up on the on the on the fact that you said 178,000 is not a lot of people, and and to you know, in other countries you get your status regularized if you're in that particular country for more than two years and you've been paying taxes and you've been you know no criminal record. Why has government moved the other way? Do you think in this particular instance is it is it you know is it something they're reading in the political climate? Is it you know something that you know is is something they they need to enforce? What what what's the real or what do you think really is the is the movement in this particular direction around this particular figure and these particular individuals who've really spent a lot of time in the country? And and like you said, also is a relatively small number, but but you know there's a there's there's a sword hanging over them right now, and and that deadline is the end of June. Yeah, I I think that um, I think that I don't think that um, you know, and I have um, had the opportunity to talk with uh, Minister Motswaledi about mm. this, and 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 other uh, officials in the in the home affairs department mm. i'm not sure that they thought through very carefully exactly what was going to happen um, mm. um you know when when the, you know because i think that they thought okay this we can't continue this irregular status mm. forever mm. Uh, we have to do something about this most of these people are have been living here for a long time and have got jobs and mm. have probably probably are in a position to apply, apply for other kinds of visas and to apply for, um, yeah, for, for, for other kinds of visas which would allow them to stay for longer or even for, for permanent residence. But, mm. the, but the, the, the provision, the, the ZDP and its, its antecedents, they didn't actually, um, they, they said explicitly that you have no right to either your children getting citizenship or you getting permanent residence. But I, I don't think that they thought through very carefully what was going to happen when when it came to an end, because mm. we know that the Department of, of Home Affairs has had difficulty in dealing with, you know, even the everyday stuff that it has to deal with, whether it's um, passports or identity documents or, mm. um, or, or, or business visas or, or tourist visas. There are very long delays at the moment. And... Mm. I mean, I think one of the reasons for that is the austerity in government, the fact that um, Treasury has cut back so sharply and doesn't allow uh, for employment of new people in, mm. in many positions. Mm. So, I don't, you know, if 178,000 people came to the doors of the Department of Home Affairs, it would mm. take years to process okay. them. Mm. Um, so I don't think that they, they thought that through, um, and I don't think they thought through what the consequences would be 
and what the you know how did it be seen in terms of the, the sort of humane issues? Mm. Um, maybe they thought okay, most of them will probably get permission to stay under other terms and we'll mm. sort it out. But I think the Zimbabweans are even you know very few of them actually applied for any other status. Mm. They're sort of trying to stay under the radar. Mm. Alan, what's happened and, and why is, and, and I'm moving beyond the, 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 the Zimbabwean issue now, the, the white paper of, tw- of 2017, the, the point system, um, is, isn't, isn't, just speak us through that particular aspect and what that particular white paper allows and doesn't allow and why it could, have, it could be an option but, but, but to all extent is being ignored. Yeah, well, you know, I, I spoke to people in government about it um, uh, a couple of months ago, and, you know, because I was quite confused about it myself. There are quite mm. a lot of reforms proposed in that white paper which haven't happened. Mm. And, you know, the, the status of that white paper is uncertain. Did it go through cabinet? Did cab- you know, um, you know, normally what happens is when something becomes a white paper, mm. it's policy, and then regulations and laws come from that, but that didn't mm. happen. So this one case is, the one aspect of it is that we have something called the critical skills list, mm. and the critical, I've actually got one in this room at the moment. Um, the critical skills list is a list issued by the Minister of Home Affairs, but mm. after consultation with other ministers, mm. um, including higher education, labor, labor and employment, and um, trade and industry, and they and there's some research that goes on, and then they decide what are the skills that we are short of, and they make a list of those skills and people who've got those skills, which includes economists, incidentally, um, which I didn't think we were that short of, <laughs> but, it, 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 uh, you know, medical people and so on. Um, there are about 120 different um, categories of professions on the list, and that's if you if you fit into that category, then you then you can um, then you can uh, uh, come into the country to find a job. Um, mm. If you don't, if you don't, um, then it's very difficult. Mm. Um, other countries have a have a different system, and um, you know one of the problems with that system is that you know from one year to another you don't know really what your shortages are going to be. I remember mm. being in cabinet once actually when a minister of health. Said, well, we don't need any more dentists. And a couple of years later, you know, there was a shortage of dentists. Mm. Um, and uh, so it's very difficult to predict how the labor market is going to move over a relatively short term or mm. medium term. So it's having that, that list, which is, you know, was last time it was um, formulated was in 2014. Mm. Then it was reformulated at the beginning of 2022. That's an eight year gap. It's a long period, and you you don't really know what's happened in that intervening period in terms yeah. of needs and so on. Sure. So it's not a great system. The point system is saying, if you have a certain level of education, mm-hmm. a certain level of skills, and a certain background in terms of experience and so on, mm-hmm. you you add things up, and you get to a certain number of points. And if you are above that point level, if you have a good degree from a good mm-hmm. university, you have good experience, um, then you will be allowed in, whether or not it's obvious that you you, you um, there's a job available for you. Yeah, yeah. Because those people are not going to come into the country if there's not a job available for them, because there are you know highly qualified people who would be able to work in any other country. Hmm. So the point system is saying we we put a, a system together like that, and 
we don't actually say you've got to be a doctor or a dentist or this or that, and you can't be a quantity surveyor because we've got too many quantity surveyors. Mm. Um, it's, it's less discriminating than that, but it's very discriminating in terms of the quality of the experience and skill of the people who come in. Mm. And that was proposed, um, or it was basically included in the, in the white. It never happened. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. I'm not sure why. Sure. In the UK, I'm in the UK at the moment, and there's a debate about the the, the point system here as well. Mm. Um, in, in many countries, there are debates about migration. Mm. Alan, the the whole issue of quotas then, and the way we've we've we as a country have tried then to to solve this particular problem, because Tulis Nessi then you know seem seemingly wants to solve the unemployment issue through through the issue of of, of quotas and and when I when I ask that particular question, I also want to ask you whether you know because a lot of people will will put forward a perception or a narrative that there's a lot of other neighboring our neighboring countries that sort of have quotas on South Africans entering those particular you know countries so for 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 the job market so I just want you to talk about that aspect as well but I want to bring the issue then of of quotas into this particular space and and with that particular question but the bigger question is is can we as a country actually through uh, the the basic standards of employment can can it be can can it really be effectively Policed in 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 a country like South Africa, this this quota system under which you've spoken to now, under the white paper and through the other the system of you know what Home Affairs is is wanting to achieve through through the the through the basic standard of employment, is it is it an effective policy you know that we could that we could implement and and quotas the way to go? I mean that's the way South Africa is going, but you know it's it's proving to be a difficult route. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's tricky in a, in a lot of ways. So this notion of quotas is just for, for your listeners who don't know um, mm. that much about it. The, the, what's put forward in the Labour Migration White Paper or Green Paper, effectively, mm. it's a draft white paper that came out at the beginning of last year. Mm. And there's also a draft law that's come out to support that, is to say, um, to protect South African em- employees to protect South African workers and people who want to get jobs in South Africa. Mm. For each industrial sector, say you're talking about the um, clothing and textile sector, mm. there will be a process in which there's a decision saying that, um, you know, we, we do need some foreign-skilled foreign people maybe in some, you know, highly skilled areas, but we don't need a lot. And maybe, you know, we could have a quota of 20% or 10% of mm. foreigners in the clothing and textile industry. Mm. That would be, hopefully that would be something that would be decided on a a fairly scientific basis where there's some, you know, conversation between government and business and so on. Mm. And then, and then, um, each company basically has to police that so that within each company, um, they're not allowed to employ more than 10% of foreigners, um, in, in, in their sector. Now, the reason for that is obviously our high levels of unemployment and the fact that South Africans feel threatened and afraid. And I can understand the reasons for it. And, it, mm. you know, it kind of makes sense politically. And if it was done the right way, if there's a proper conversation between government and business, you know, it could be done in a way that doesn't harm business and it doesn't mm. harm people either. Mm. But, but, you know, it is difficult to police, you know. 
the Labor Department has Labor inspectors and mm-hmm. the Home Affairs Department has inspectors as well, and they're trying to work together. But there's firstly not a very large number of inspectors. Mm-hmm. And secondly, every time you have rules like this, you know, it encourages um, businesses and, and people to try to break the rules and bend the rules and to, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, to bribe the inspectors or to, you know, persuade the inspectors in one way or another to overlook what they're doing. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it does depend on a system that works that works quite well. Um, although, you know, and if they could clean up the, the, the quality of the inspectorate and impo- appoint mm. more inspectors, mm. it, it's theoretically possible, yeah. Mm. Let's let's get to the to to an interesting aspect um, of of the employment space because we're talking about the quotas and we're talking about specific skills and jobs and 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 the likes. There's there's a particular narrative and and a perception that you know migrants would would come to South Africa, migrants would occupy South African jobs, and 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 South Africans would be left out of the job market. And of course, we do have that unemployment figure of of 34% and we have the youth unemployment figure of just I think above 60% and those figures are, are relatively high. Uh, and so with with having mentioned those particular numbers already, this this perception that where where South Africans will tell you and and unemployed South Africans people wanting to get into the job space will tell you that you know um because we don't even know the, the the figure of undocumented people in the in the country, because that specific number is unknown, people will then lead to a conversation that begins to say, "Yeah, you know, the, the migrants are coming to this particular country, and they're beginning to take up, you know, spaces that South Africans would have taken up." Is that a true perception um, uh, uh, related to to foreign nationals? Because I want to ask you this question: Is there actually the reverse where uh, where you would have for the number of foreign nationals in the country, you would have actually a certain number of jobs created as well because of either the entrepreneurship and or the fact that they, they need to do things on their own. So they start small businesses. They're not going to lean on government for any money. They can't lean on government for any money. And so they're going to just be proactive in their space and, and, and try to do things in an entrepreneurial way. Is the reverse true whereby one could actually say, yes, they come and they do take up space and they do take up jobs, but they create jobs as well? Well, they they do. They do create jobs. The question is what the balance is. So Mm. there were a couple of studies that were done um, in 2018, one by the World Bank and one by the ILO, Mm. um, International Labour Organization. And both of them found that um, that uh, migrants um, added to economic growth and mm. added added to employment, but the ILO one found that in some provinces mm. the displacement of people was was a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the thing is that we've been through. We've been, you know we've been through a, peer, a, peer, a long period of very very slow growth. Mm. Very, very slow growth where jobs haven't grown as fast as the population has grown. Mm. So whether or not there were lots of illegal migrants, the fact is that we would have high levels of unemployment. We have had negative per capita growth for the last 10 years, except for one or two years. Mm-hmm. Our, our our national income 
today is considerably lower than it was per, per capita mm-hmm. um, on, on average um, uh, than it was um, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the last 10 years, we've really lost a lot of ground. So whether or not there were foreigners, it would be difficult to get jobs. And the thing is that, you know, if you're unemployed, the fact that, you know, some foreigner is creating a job for somebody else, somewhere else, it's not going to help you. So Mm. um, I can understand why unemployment, unemployed people would think, you know, that's a factor. Mm. I don't think it's a big factor, but I can understand why I don't think it's a factor. And I can understand why politicians, you know, irresponsible politicians use that situation to mm-hmm. to blame migrants for a situation which isn't actually caused by the migrants. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether it's the hospitals not working properly or not enough jobs, it's easy for the politicians to say that it's the migrants' fault. Mm. Alan, I'm going to take two calls. Tabang in Edenville. Tabang? Hi. Hi, good Tabang. Evening. Good evening, Tabang. How are you, man? I'm good, thanks, and yourself? Good, good, Tabang. Great. Tabang, have you have you have you got a question or a comment, Tabang? Um, uh, I wonder if I'm on the right station. You, is that? It's Power ninety eight point seven, Tabang. Oh. Okay, I don't I don't think Tabang was Tabang is listening, calling in, but maybe Tabang is not here on this particular uh, 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 conversation. Let's go to Sammy in Dobsonville, Sammy. Good day, good afternoon, good evening. Sure, Sammy. Sure, man. I hear you talking with your guest that there's, there's a narrative that migrants, especially from African countries, are taking jobs that are that could have been given to South Africans. And I'm saying this thing is not just, it's not a narrative, because uh-huh. like, I know when people are using the word narrative, they yeah. need it another way. It is a fact. Yeah. And I can name those companies just that, I don't want to bring your company power power FM into this repeat just if you are I can name those companies. I know who they are. They mm. they've all they've even been uh some of them have been have, have been exposed in the media mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And also I hear your guests saying migrants have created jobs mm. and South Africans have benefited. I don't know when he says migrants, which migrants is he, is he, is he, is he referring to? Which migrants is he, is he talking about? Because if you are talking about migrants from those countries that are ravaged by civil wars and tribalism in Africa, mm. in around the African continent, then I'll say that's not correct at all. Because most of these people that are being persecuted by governments, they are poor, they are running away from countries like DRC. How then are they going to create jobs they, for South Africans? They themselves are looking for employment. Yes. That's I mean Dobsonville. Alan, on, on, on it's a it's a thorny issue, Alan, and, and you know one 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 has to tread with it, you know, extremely carefully because there's the political space, there's the economic space, there's the high number, you know, of unemployed people in this in this country. The youth will look at it very differently as well, with that particular figure of sixty percent. How do you how do you begin to to you know thread on 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 a on a on a conversation where you know um, you've you've got to be very very aware of what ordinary South Africans are beginning to say about you know the uh, the the flow of migrants into into a country where that perception of 
you know, occupying jobs is very, very real. Some some employers, um, you know, I think there's no doubt some employers exploit the fact that there are migrants who are Mm. maybe irregular, you know, refugees who haven't gone through the system or or are in a vulnerable position who will work hard for wages that um, they wouldn't be allowed to offer to South Africans Mm. um, and that they do take advantage. I'm sure that that happens. I'm sure it happens in the farms. I'm sure it happens in some factories. I'm sure it happens in a lot of service sectors like the security industry and those kinds of industries. Um, and th- there's no question that that happens. So, I mean, the response of the Department of Labor to that is to say, labor and employment is to say, well, you know, we have to make sure that the standards of employment are maintained at 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 every factory on every farm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if 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 a migrant was 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 forced to basically work for the same wages and working conditions, etc., that a South African would legally be entitled to, then there wouldn't be an advantage in employing the migrant. That's mm. the response of the the department, and also to say that um, you know the quota, the, the the idea of quotas. So you know you have to protect you know X percentage of the jobs for South Africans. Mm. You know, it's, and that would, you know, that is a rational response, I think, from government. But the, but the fundamental problem is that there are not mm. enough jobs. Mm. You know, the fundamental problem is that, you know, when, um, when the economy is growing rapidly, in in the in the when you and I were in the presidency, I'm sure it mm. wasn't because of the fact that you and I were in the presidency, but at that time, <laughs> I'd like to think time, it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. Um, but at that time, the economy is growing at about four or five percent per annum. Mm. We actually reduced unemployment by about two million between between 2004 and 2008, mm. and uh, the unemployment rate came down from about where it is now, about 33 percent, to about 23 percent. Now, 23 percent isn't good, mm. but it's a lot better than it has been at any other time, mm. and. You know, if the economy was was able to, you know, if if we were able to grow the economy more effectively, if we didn't have this electricity crisis and a lot of other policy issues that are getting in the way of economic growth, then I, you know, this issue of migrants taking our jobs would be less of an issue. Mm. It wouldn't be an issue, but it would be less of an issue. Mm. The free- so we we need to we need to you know point to the to all the causes of the problem. The free free movement uh, of of people, whether it now be you know in the free trade area, whether it be you know in 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 protocols adopted, or whether you know Julius Malema is talking about it, or whether you know uh, the the Home Affairs Minister is talking about that 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 whole aspect of free movement of 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 people across borders and or trade across borders. In 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 South Africa, particularly, it's 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 not just confusing; it's conflicted as well, and very very controversial. Just in the terminology itself, why 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 do you think that, Alan? Or you know, is it? Well, I think you know, I think that people think that if you you know the, the way that the free movement African Union free movement protocol is supposed to be introduced is initially just to allow people to to visit, mm-hmm. so for three months, and then maybe for students. And and for people who are going to come for temporary periods, but under you know regulated conditions, mm. um, the, the 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 people can't automatically get jobs in those countries that they visit. They have to go through the domestic legislation, which in South Africa requires a, a permit, basically mm. a 
uh, a permit for, for foreigners to work in South Africa. Um, that permit system wouldn't be done away with in the initial stages. And I'm sure that South Africa could, you know, theoretically could participate in, in the protocol, but not, not allow people to, 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 to take jobs if mm. all of our systems were working properly and if all the systems of our other of our neighbours and other African countries that we're working with were working properly. Sure. So I think people are afraid of it because they they think that um, uh, free movement initially means they're going to be able to come and mm. take our jobs without any regulation, and that's not the way that it's designed. I'm going to go to Sefudi and also Edward in Social Gube. Sefudi? Uh, Denzel and your guest, I wonder if guest is aware of the push and pull factors mm. that are involved there. And the pull is only to one direction. Mm. I won't go to Zimbabwe because in Zimbabwe they tell me of indigenization. Mm. In Botswana it's a no-no. It's the same. But in South Africa we flippantly talk 10%. Amidst the economic system uh, that is failing, the employment rate, rate, unemployment rate, that is quarterly uh, uh, rising. And jobs have been taken already and because there's no control there's no monitoring uh, employers uh, use these people uh, foreigners for cheap labor you find in some industries the majority are foreigners we are at the cold face we see this on daily basis hospitals we treat these people and the health sector is struggling uh, funds are not there and we battle for this smaller cake with foreigners and uh, government allowed this and it's now uh, 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 hitting us in the face and the ZEP was not intended mm. to be a permanent issue. Last week Malawi they were saying foreigners should be taken to the camps. We know it's inhuman but to control for some measure of control that's what you must do in order to document properly. But yeah, it's not the solution. It's a free-for-all. Good evening to you. So, food in Ranfontein. Let's take Edward in Sosjongove. Edward? Sure, how's it, bro? Sure, my man. How are you, Edward? Sharp, sharp, man. Like hey, man. I would like to disagree with your guest, man. Sure, and sure. You know, things that we see on the ground mm. and what he's saying are totally two different things. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example, but I'll give you two examples about two different places. Go mm-hmm. to Maravastad yeah. in Pretoria. 80% of the people that are owning the shops in Maravastat are foreigners. Mm. And 90% of the people that are working in, in their shops, in their shops, are Malawians and Zimbabweans. Mm. Uh, South Africa is 10%. I'm talking the reality that we see on a daily basis. Mm. Number two, go to, uh, go to Northwest. Go to Northwest, bro. Uh, you will uh, you will be surprised when you are, uh, when I finish to tell you this. Shops, shops in Northwest are selling liquor. It's a lawlessness uh, place whereby even uh, I don't know how many times have we complained about. Mm. Uh, foreigners are running tech shops in there. They are selling liquor, and when you check in the shops, in their shops. There's not even one South African that is working in that shop. 
It is only for us. Edward in Soshanguve, just like Sefudi and Edward have done, 0861987000. The WhatsApp number is 0833037093. On Twitter, of course, we are at PowerFM987. Our show hashtag is Power Perspective. My guest, of course, is Professor Alan Hirsch, founder and director of the Nelson Mandela School of Governance at the University of Cape Town. We're talking migration, 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 so many issues here. Let me just bring Professor Alan Hirsch back into the conversation. Prof, you would have heard Sefudi and you would have heard Edward. And and how do you how do you find within a balance, um, and particularly yourself who who needs to then research and document and write uh, and present, you know, and 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 teach about these certain things? How do you find a balance between all of these conflicting interests in in a country like South Africa with the unemployment rate and the un you know the the the, the youth unemployment, the the high poverty, the the high inequality. How do you how do you strike the balance in a conversation around migration? Um, Denzel, yeah, it's, I heard Safudi and I heard um, Edward, mm. and you know, you know, I believe what they're saying. Mm. Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I didn't deny the fact that there are low-skilled, um, irregular migrants who are taking jobs mm. um, that South Africans might be able to do, and that's, you know, that's unfortunate. And that, you know, there isn't sufficient control. I mean, the Maravastad story and the Northwest story are stories of, you know, basically, um, you know, lawlessness. Mm. Um, you know, what we're doing in, in my research project with the um, New South Institute is that we're looking at four African countries and four African regions. We're looking at South Africa, Mozambique, Kenya and Nigeria, and we're mm. looking at uh, the four regions um, mm. in Africa and looking at how they have dealt with these kinds of issues. And what we're trying to do is to learn from other African countries, to learn between African countries. I don't think there's enough learning taking place between African countries mm. about how we deal with this. So, for example, the story that Safudi told mm. um, about refugees, um, economic refugees who who flock to South Africa. Well, mm. Uganda has a million uh, refugees from South Sudan and from DRC. Mm. And you, there are now academic articles being written about how well Uganda has managed the situation. They have found ways to include the refugees. They've got them farming in areas that weren't being farmed before. Mm. They've got them doing setting up businesses in areas that they haven't. So Uganda has actually become a kind of a model for other African countries about how to um, have inclusive policies towards towards refugees. It's not impossible. Mm. It's not impossible to manage it properly. And even a relatively poor country like Uganda is actually doing an incredibly good job. Mm. And that's the kind of thing that we're trying to do. We're trying to learn from, you know, all the different countries, how they, how they manage things. And, you know, I think there's a lot that we can learn from East Africa and West Africa in particular. Mm. Alan, you still you still very much involved in the economic space and in, in, in the country and still 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 uh, you know uh, occupying that particular space. Well, yeah, I'm afraid so. I'm, I'm <laughs> still on on President Ramaphosa's economic advisory council, sure. um, along with about sixteen other people, um, trying to and that's and I have been focusing on migration issues in mm. in that area recently, also a bit of macroeconomic stuff. Alan, I, mm, I, I need to, I need to bring you back for some of those particular conversations, Alan, around the economy as well, um, and and so I'm going to thank you, Alan, for for quite an insightful conversation tonight about migration and just the broader the context on the African continent. Uh, you you said you're in the UK, Alan. 
Yeah. Ah, somebody with pounds, right? 25, 25 <laughs> rand lot, to the pound, right? a lot of pounds. But, um, <laughs> you know, my, my wife has a flat in London, which makes life a lot easier. <laughs> Alan, <laughs> Prof, thank you so much for coming on to Power Perspective tonight. Thank you okay. so much. Thanks, Denzel. It was, it was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. That's Professor Alan Hirsch, founder and director of the Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance at the University of Cape Town, just giving us some insights into the kind of uh, uh, research and workings and, and, and space he occupies there. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.